0: Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. Good to see all of you who were not fooled by daylight savings. I was fooled one time when I was in college. I thought I was going to be early to church, showed up, and it was the end of the service. I kept wondering, why is he preaching at the beginning of the service? This is very strange. And then there was the benediction, and I was in worship for about 10 minutes, um, my name is Jonathan Keenan, I'm the campus minister with RUF, and I am, um, I'm always privileged to uh, fill in for Kyle when he's away. He's away in, in Chicago, I think he's presenting a paper later this week and preaching this morning, so it's a joy for me to be able to, be able to open up God's Word um, for us this morning. So if you have a Bible, um, you can turn to Psalm 63, and if you don't have one, there are some in the back, uh, so feel free to grab one. Uh, a, a dear friend of mine is a, a chaplain um, in the Army, and a couple of years ago, he, he actually serves with the RUF as well uh, back in, um, in in Mississippi, and a couple of years ago, he was called up uh, to active duty, and uh, he was being deployed overseas, and I, I called him a couple of days before he left and checking to see how he was doing, see how his family was doing. Um, he's got a wife and, and three kids, and he said, for the most part, you know, we've, we've been talking about leaving for a while, that I was leaving for a while, and, and, and they're, they understand that daddy's going to be gone. And um, he said, but my middle son uh, is the one who's having the most difficult with, you know, with me leaving. And so he told me that one of the ways in which he was going to try and maybe encourage his middle son was that he was, he told him all the different stops that he was going to make you know, on his journey to Kyrgyzstan, and so he said, I fly from Jackson, Mississippi up to New York or or New Jersey. From there, I'll fly over to Germany, and when I land in Germany, I'll end up in Kyrgyzstan, and he told his son, he said, along every stop, I'll pick up a little, you know, local trinket, you know, something from Jackson, something from New Jersey or New York, something from Germany, And then something from Kyrgyzstan. So that you'll know that I made it from, you know, every location I made it. And you'll know that that I made it to Kyrgyzstan safely. I'll, I'll gather all these trinkets and I'll send you a little care package. And... I'll never forget what he told me next. His son, he didn't miss a beat. He said, Dad, you don't get it. I don't want the presence. I just want you. I thought about that story um, because I think David... In Psalm 63, he's asking a question. And the question is this Is Jesus enough? Like, is Jesus enough when your life is upended? Is Jesus enough when you're in a marriage that is really difficult? Is Jesus enough when your kids who have been baptized have yet to embrace the good news of Jesus? You see, for David, in Psalm 63, he's found that Jesus is enough. And my prayer for us this morning is that we, with the psalmist, would be able to say, Jesus, your steadfast love, it is better than life. So to that end, let's, let's pray before we consider Psalm 63. Lord Jesus, your, um, your word is it's more precious than gold even fine gold it is sweeter than honey even sweeter than honey that comes dripping off the comb and we know in the beginning was the word the word was with god and the word was god and so jesus uh, we know that you are you are precious more precious than fine gold. And Jesus, you're sweeter, even sweeter than honey that comes dripping off the comb. And so we would ask that your Holy Spirit would come and make those realities um, true in all of our hearts, that we might see that you are more precious and more sweet this morning may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, would they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For we pray this in your name. Amen. The context of Psalm 63 is what makes this psalm so fascinating. Um, David is in the wilderness. He's been pushed out into the wilderness um, in Judah. And there's two times that we learn about where David was fleeing from his life and and he has to go out into the wilderness in Judah. The first one was when King Saul was, was chasing him. And the second time was when Absalom, his son, was seeking to dethrone him and kill him. And most commentators agree that Psalm 63 is when Absalom, his son, is seeking to dethrone him and kill him. And so it's out of that context that David writes Psalm 63. Now, what you need to understand is that when you think wilderness and you think King David is out somewhere on his own, we might be conditioned to think that he's got north face jackets. <laughs> GPS tracking systems, search and rescue on the beck and call. And what you need to understand is that David actually is out on his own with no resources, no comforts. Um, He doesn't have the luxury of certain protective gear. So when you think wilderness, think... Here's King David, who at one point had everything, had all power, all protection. He had a palace walls and gates, had all the things that would protect him from the elements. And now he has been cast out from Jerusalem. He's on his own with no resources, the loss of family, and he's in utter survival mode. And he's, he's worried that his enemies are actually going to overtake him and kill him. And you kind of get hints about this all throughout the psalm. But what's so fascinating about this psalm is that in the midst of David's life being upended, did you notice the language of fulfillment, of satisfaction? That he was content, even though his life has been upended. David's been uniquely blessed while he's been cast out in the wilderness in Judea. And so I just want to look at at a couple of things this morning. Um, What is it that David actually wants? What does he long for? And how may that help us? And then two, what does David do in order to get what he wants? Two simple points. What does David want and what does he do? Um, First, what does David want? Now, there's a, there's a couple of ways that we could approach this, and I'm going to kind of approach it by what he doesn't want, which is actually really fascinating. If you've ever been cast out into the wilderness, so to speak, where your life has been upended, it's quite natural for us to ask God to fix it, right? So, if you're in a hard marriage, you pray that God would fix your marriage. If If you've lost your job because of the economy, it's quite natural to pray and ask God to provide you another job. If you feel that your life is in jeopardy, it's okay to ask God for protection. All of those things are legitimate prayers, and we should pray those things. But what's so fascinating about Psalm 63 is that David, he doesn't ask for those things. He doesn't ask God to reinstate him on the throne. He doesn't ask God to destroy his enemy. He doesn't ask God to provide him with food and shelter and protection, which you would think is the most obvious thing. Like, I'm in the wilderness, God. you got to save me. So what does he ask for? What does he want? What does he long for? Look at verse 1 which sets the scene for the entire psalm. He says, "O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water." The emphasis upon what David wants and longs for is God. He's hungering and thirsting after God. In other words, he's using the language of his felt needs to convey his longing for God. Very similar to Psalm 42. So what do we learn from this? I think what David is showing us is that he understood that worship is the controlling mechanism of our character. That what we worship, it actually forms and shapes who we are. It can restructure our entire makeup. There's a place inside all of us, a center that you go to when you need consolation. There's a center in which you run to when you have nothing else to think about. There's a place inside all of us that we go to to look for comfort or excitement. There's a center inside every single one of us that we look to that ends up shaping or forming or restructuring who we are. Another way to think about it is like this. All of us are created with an eternity-shaped hole in our hearts, and we spend every day trying to fill it. Every single one of us have an eternity-shaped hole in our hearts, and we spend every single day trying to fill it. I read an article right after Philip Seymour Hoffman, the actor, died died uh, tragically. And... Um, The author of this article, which was entitled, I Should Have Been Philip Seymour Hoffman, he writes candidly about how he should have suffered the same type of death that Philip Seymour Hoffman did. Listen to what he says. He says, while the manifestations of our addictions might be different, we shared the same basic problem, not wanting to miss out the next role, the next job, the next high. So we run. We run from something or to something. As is often the case, people with addictions are always chasing the wind. But with the running, with all these vapor-grasping marathons, come a tremendous amount of pain. And with, and with this pain comes even more enormous desire to numb it all away. More jobs, more work, more hero, more porn, more money, more food. You choose the drug. There seems to be something about chasing the wind that always ends in disaster. You see what he's saying? These vapor-grasping marathons is him looking to fill that eternity-shaped hole inside of his heart. He's describing what every single one of us do day in and day out. Everyone is looking to something to say, if I don't have this, then my life means nothing. And it's out of that context where David can literally say, when he has nothing, oh God, your steadfast love is better than life. Because David understood that the controlling mechanism of his heart that shaped and formed everything about him was God himself. In other words, the reason why David can handle his crumbling life is because he knows who is at the center of his personality. Something is the center of your personality. You are what you love. And David is teaching us here this morning that when God is the controlling mechanism of our lives, when God is who we love, it really is better than life. This is who David wants. This is what he is after. He's after God. But what does David do? How can David write verse 1 out of that kind of context? It's because he's looked upon God in the sanctuary. He's beheld his power and his glory and he's remembered his steadfast love. And there's that word again that we saw last week in Psalm 42. This word is a rich Old Testament word. Chesed. Which I said last week is always fun to say. And it gets at this idea that God's love is unrelenting, it's immovable, it's unchangeable. One writer said of of this kind of love is, is the love that God gives us regardless of the danger it is to himself. And this is where David begins to dwell. What David does is he begins to remember God's steadfast love. Now, why does he remember God's steadfast love? Why is that the thing that he focuses on? Well, I can't read, you know. obviously, David's motivation for why he dwells on this, but I, I just started thinking about it. If you remember David's life, there was a time where David, as, as the king neglected his responsibility. When all of his men went out to war, David stayed home and he saw a woman bathing on a rooftop, Bathsheba. And he ended up having an affair with her. She was married to Uriah the Hittite, one of David's most loyal soldiers. He has an affair with Bathsheba, impregnates her, and then to cover it all up, he has Uriah murdered on the front line. If you remember, God sends Nathan the prophet to convict him because at least nine months went by without David dealing with it. And God sends Nathan the prophet, and you can read about this in in 2 Samuel 10, 11, 12. But it's interesting what happens because, because God looks and speaks through Nathan and says, you tell David, that because of the evil act that you've done, the sword will never depart from your house. And evil will accompany you. And then right after that, God says, but tell him that I have dealt with his sin." I want you to think about this. David is, is cast out into the wilderness. Absalom, his son, is chasing him, seeking to dethrone him. He has no resources, no protection, and it's all his fault. Like, the reason why he's in the wilderness is because of his sin. He was cast out, and evil men are chasing him, and it's because of his own fault. And yet, in the midst of that David remembers God's steadfast love that it's unending that no matter where his feet have taken him no matter whatever mess he finds himself in David remembers that God's love it's unending even though his life has been upended and he remembers. Now what is it about God's steadfast love that so moved David? And what David remembers is that God's steadfast love it is a love in which God delights in David. It's not a generic love. It's a love in which God actually delights in David. David is meditating on being delighted in. David sees that, his, that he is loved to the uttermost. And it is better than life. And we all know this to be the case, right? Like you know the feeling the first time when someone says that they love you. Or when someone just says they like you. Or when someone praises you for a talent that you have. Especially if it's someone in your same field. So if you're a professor and you write articles and another professor reads one and says, that was really good, you know the feeling of what that that does to your soul. We understand why David is so moved when he thinks and dwells upon God's steadfast love because he knows that God delights in him. That's the kind of love steadfast love is. That someone finds you beautiful. Someone enjoys you. I've referenced this book before, um, Letters to an Unborn Child. It's written by David Ireland and David Ireland was dying from a crippling neurological disease, and when he discovered it, he um, found out that his wife was pregnant, uh, carrying a child, and so he began to write letters to his unborn child. And one of the chapters, he writes about his wife, because he wanted his child to know about his, his mother, about the child's mother. Um, And this scene takes place, it's kind of like just a normal daily routine. Um, He's in a wheelchair, so that's helpful for the context. Um, But this is what he says. He says, here's what happens frequently. I hate taking a shower, but I have to do it about twice a week, and I can't do it by myself because he's in a wheelchair. So your mom washes my hair and gets me clean, and after the shower is what I hate the most, I end up in front of the mirror shirtless. And it is in this moment that I see myself. I see my concave chest. I see my muscles atrophy. I see how my head hangs slightly to the right because I can't keep it straight up. And I just see how ugly I am. And every time your mom comes in and says to me, would you quit admiring yourself in the mirror? I'm going to take it away from you. Then about two hours later, She always does this. She'll wheel me to the dinner table. She'll put my hand in her lap, and she'll look at me, and she'll say, you know you're handsome, right? You know I think you're the most handsome person in the world, and you know that I love you. And he says, somehow, because of our shared experience and because of all that she has seen, because of all that she has been through with me, I know that she really means it. When King David remembers God's steadfast love, a love in which God delights in him, you know what he's remembering Right? He's remembering that when he looks at himself in the mirror and he sees all the ways in which his sin has deformed him, all the ways in which his sin has made him ugly, what he's remembering is what God says over him David, you know that I think you're handsome, right? Like, you know that I think you're the most beautiful person in the world, and you know that I love you. And that's never going to change. And because of their shared experience, he believes it. And here's the thing, what I want you to hear this morning is that same thing. That no matter how your sin deforms you, no matter how your life is upended because of the actions that you do or the behaviors that you do, what I want you to hear is that God thinks and delights over you because of his steadfast love for you. And here's the thing. The more that you begin to remember it and meditate on it and dwell upon it, the more that will become a reality. How do I know that to be the case? And this is what's so fascinating. David doesn't have all the information that we do. And yet, his soul was satisfied as with rich food, fatty foods. Like I ate way too much pizza last night, and I was thinking about that this morning. Like his soul was satisfied with rich food. And yet he doesn't have all the information that we have. His knowledge was limited. And yet we have the full story. Because in the New Testament we learn that there was another king. Who was driven out into the wilderness. But not for his sins, but for our sins. And this king loved God with all of his heart, all of his mind, all of his strength, perfectly, without sin, and yet God poured out his wrath on him for you and for me. There is no better way to see and experience and know the steadfast love of God than when you behold Jesus hanging on a cross. where grace and mercy and love meet. Jesus suffering for you and for me. And here's the thing, when you begin to see that, when you begin to see that Jesus has loved you to the uttermost, when that washes over you, it will become better than life itself. So what do we do with this? I mean, there's lots we can say. I haven't even really scratched the surface of Psalm 63. But did you notice how David, in the midst of his life, he's, there's all these different words to describe what he's doing. He's, he's praising God with his lips. He's, he's blessing God. He's thirsting for God. There's all of these. It's this language of felt needs conveying what he's doing for God, for his soul. And it leads him to worship. To worship God is to be changed by the value of knowing him and experiencing him. In other words, the more that we behold the worth and beauty of God, to that degree we will see our lives changed and transformed and restored. What do I mean? I don't know if any of you watch Antiques Roadshow couple of years ago. Oh, it was actually probably about 10, 15 years ago. Um, it's a show on PBS. There was a lady who brought in a statue of a lion that her parents had bought when they were in China. And she had a friend say, you know what, I think this, this statue of this lion comes from the Ming dynasty, Ming era of, of, of Chinese art. And so, Antiques Roadshow appeared up in her town in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and so she goes to get it appraised. And she goes up, and she sits in front of the appraiser. And if you've ever seen it, they always put these things on these little pedestals, and the guy's like looking at it. And most of the time, it's like, yeah, it's a fake. You can see it because of this here, and you know, these guys are experts. Well, this guy sees this lion statue, and he's speechless. And he says, do you know anything about this? And she kind of says, well, you know, my parents used to travel a lot, and they were, spent some time in China, and they bought it at this kind of outdoor market. And a friend said that it might be from the Ming Dynasty, and he goes, oh, no. This is from the Tong Dynasty, which is apparently the greatest dynasty or era of Chinese art. And he, he begins to describe the lion. In, in words, in, in, in worshipful words. And he's just spinning the lion on the pedestal. He's saying, Look at how beautiful it is. I mean, every angle, it's exquisite. And he's just, he literally, in the episode, he gets choked up because he can't express vocally what he's feeling internally, except through tears. He says, this is the most expensive item we've ever had on this show. He said, if I were you, I would appraise this for at least half a million dollars. And here's what's funny. The lady had kept it in her attic for who knows how long in some sort of box box. And the guy's looking at here and he's saying, you need to appraise this or insure this for at least a half a million because it's worth far more than that. You understand what David's doing in Psalm 63, right? I don't mean this irreverently, but he's holding out God. He's holding out Jesus and he's saying, do you not see from every angle how exquisite, how beautiful, how magnificent, he is, he is the greatest person I have ever seen. And here's the question. Do you think that lady took that lion statue home and put it back in the attic? Of course she didn't. David is saying, worship, the way in which we measure God's worth, to that degree we will become radically changed. He is holding out Jesus to you this morning and he's saying he's the most beautiful person I have ever seen. And his steadfast love, it is better than life itself. Look, every angle. No matter where you see him from, he is precious and sweet and beautiful. So can you say this morning, Jesus you are enough. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the cross, on the one hand, is one of the most horrific acts, is the most horrific act in, in human history, Why are you the one up there? The sinless, perfect, beautiful Son of God. You do not belong up there. We do. And yet, the cross is one of the most beautiful displays of your steadfast love. That you would be willing to be driven out for our sins so that we might know the sweetness of your love. Lord Jesus, would you make Would you take that picture and that reality and would you drive it deep within our souls so that we might behold once again your power and your beauty and your glory. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.